Friends, you may have a seat. I just got a couple announcements for you. Welcome. I am so glad you are here. And uh, it's uh, almost October. Is it October yet? Not yet. Not quite yet. It's like the 28th or something, right? We got a month. So um, as an outreach to Truckee community, we do what's called Trunk or Treat. And if you haven't been a part of that or are new to our church, um, on Halloween night, uh, we basically invite the community to come to SBC. We invite you as missionaries to uh, Truckee to be gospel presenters, that you can go out and hand out candy, interact with people. Um, you can decorate a car. You can do a game. You can um, buy bags of candy, etc., etc. There's plenty of ways that you can get involved. But today I want to hit upon the fact that Sometimes we get to the side of saying, man, we're celebrating Halloween. You know, we're coming along with the world. And no, we are celebrating an opportunity, an avenue for you and I to create relationships to share truth. So on Halloween night, Sunday, October 31st, there's an opportunity for you to come to decorate something, to interact with somebody, hand somebody a hot dog in the name of Jesus, Look for an opportunity to build a relationship and tell them about the good news of the gospel that he has come to save and to redeem mankind. Amen? So, two, two things. One, there's a clipboard at the info booth, or you can go to sbctrucky.com, click on this icon, and it will take you to a registration page for volunteers. Uh, typically, to run the event, I need about 50 volunteers to run the event. A lot of people. That's like this half of the room over here. So we need all of you to go sign up after this. Um, throughout the year, I mean, we do all kinds of different outreaches here at SBC, whether that be reaching out to um, the teachers at the school. Um, we're involved. Uh, Craig Forsyth uh, heads up our team that goes down to the local soup kitchen here, uh, building relationships with our friends around that, that need of assistance. Uh, we have opportunities like Trunk or Treat that are attractional where there's over a thousand people usually that come through our parking lot. And it's a very non-threatening way for you to practice being a missionary for Jesus and maybe sharing your faith. Because I know, without a doubt, there are many people that are here that have never shared your faith before. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. But God tells us in Matthew chapter 24, if I'm not mistaken, 28, 28, to go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And making disciples means that you have to talk to people. And sometimes, in a COVID age where we're in, we don't like to talk to people. We don't like to talk to our neighbor. Opportunity for you to bring down those walls. And yes, I'm talking to you, you, you. All these eyeballs are looking at me like, yes, I don't like to talk to anybody. Um, let's come alongside. Let's bless Trekkie. Uh, last thing, there was a, a bin in the foyer. We give away probably like 20,000 pieces of candy. We, we keep the dentist in, in business. But um, we, we would love your donations, you guys, for, for candy. Unopened bags. I was telling somebody this morning, a lot of times, the guys will bring the bags and are open, and all the Reese's are gone. <laughs> no. Bring your best. Don't take the Reese's out and seal it up with some duct tape and say, here you go. Bring unopened bags of candy. I'm, I'm a Reese's lover, too, but unopened bags of candy. And... Uh, Let's, uh, let's bless our community and let's be on mission for the Lord together. Amen? Hey, I'm going to invite Mr. Beers. Mr. Brad Beers is one of our elders here. Yeah, we can round of applause for him, yeah. Um, he's one of our elders here at the church and helps to kind of lead the spiritual guidance of the church. And 
we have the opportunity to hear from him today and just wanted to say thank you for uh, blessing us today with the word and, and for keeping us safe in the community, man. If you guys didn't know, Mr. Beers is, is one of our peace officers too. So thank you, man. All right. <laughs> but at this, this right here, what we're about to do is certainly my favorite thing. Certainly my favorite thing. I get to share with you, I don't know if you realize how significant this book is. Are you aware of it? Actually, it's so significant. If you didn't bring one or you forgot it or you need one, uh, raise your hand. And then some guys there in the back, like Travis and Terry, and if we don't have some other people, raise your hand. We will put a Bible in your hand because we're going to use it this morning. Uh, in case you didn't pick up on the fact I was referring to the Bible. That's what this book is that I'm talking to. We want to make sure that you have them uh, to be able to use. So snag some. Keep your hand up until, all of the, until you get one available. And then once you have it, open it up to Colossians chapter 3, because we are going to continue this morning in our series of Colossians 3. Uh, we still got, oh, nice. I really like when I see that we're running out of Bibles. That's a good sign. It's a good sign. Um, maybe you can share with a neighbor if you didn't get one. I apologize. So we're going to, once you get to Colossians chapter 3, I'm going to ask you if you are able uh, one more time to stand up. And this is a tradition that we have primarily because what is going to happen this morning is that we are going to read from the very words of God. And we try to use our bodies to remind ourselves how significant of a thing that that is. That when we read this text, we are reading the very words of God. We are going to work with Colossians 3, starting in verse 18 and go through chapter 4, verse 1. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bond service, servants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. God, you know that I have done my best to try to prepare some words this morning to hopefully bring light to the text, but we know that we are powerless to, to really hear this, receive it well, and live it out without the power of your spirit. And so we beg for your presence now that what we do in this time would be to receive your word with open hearts and we would be willing through your power to live it out in a way that brings you glory and honor and, and elevates your reputation in our town. We give you this time. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> so, like I said, we are continuing in a... a uh, a study of the letter of Colossians. So just by way of background, if you haven't been with us the whole time, the letter of Colossians is a letter that's written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Colossae, a church with which he had 
no real relationship and didn't know a whole lot about until its pastor came to him and said, hey, Paul, we're having some issues at the Church of Colossae. And so I'll try to be more entertaining if I can. Uh, so what Paul, what Paul was then trying to do with his letter is, uh, is address the issues in such a way that would fix a lot of the wrong thinking that they had developed and try to show them what right thinking looks like and what right behaviors follow from that right thinking. That's what brings us to chapter 3. In the first set of verses, 1 through 4, Paul starts laying out what right thinking in Christ looks like. And then through verses 5 through 16, he starts showing, in a little bit more practically, what attitudes and behaviors we need to put off in light of that right thinking, and what attitudes and behaviors we need to clothe ourselves with. And we do all of these things in, according to verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of whom? Good. You guys are better than the first service, but we, we still have some ground that we can gain. I like to ask questions, and I want you to actually answer. I will try to make them mostly just giant lobbed softballs. This is the ultimate of softball. The answer to every church question is almost always going to be Jesus. So... In whose name are we doing this? So much better. So much better. Well done. Well done. And we're doing these things in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then what Paul does is takes these attitudes and behaviors that we are to clothe ourselves with and gets even more practical, showing us how this is going to manifest in three different contrasting sets of relationships. And what I'm going to show you hopefully this morning is that those relationships primarily are focused inside the home. The wife and the husband relationship, the children and parent relationship, and the slave and the master relationship. Which may not necessarily sound to you like a family relationship, but hopefully by the time we get there I can show you why Paul couples that in as a household or a home relationship. Now, before you say, looking at these relationships, okay, I this is one that I can kind of like, I, I could probably tune out. I'm, Brad, I'm, I'm not married. Or, Brad, I have no kids. Or, Brad, I don't own a human being. Whatever it is that you might say that could cause you to disqualify yourself from this text, I encourage you to recognize, and what, I'm, what I hopefully will do is still point out some important principles that we're going to learn about human interaction. But we cannot deny that Paul is setting a bigger picture in which he is telling us that the home is the foundation of human existence. The place where we learn about real love, about real sacrifice, about enduring beauty. And I think that he does this primarily because much of the disaster of our current cultural climate is probably due to the fact that we have eroded the power of the home in culture. If we think about it, we, we started first by redefining love. We took it outside of the house. And, and we moved away from intimate, committed relationships and have reduced ourselves to just mere sex. And it doesn't really matter what the consequences are to my own soul even, or even the greater travesty of the destruction of these inconveniently unborn. We then moved on and we, we redefined marriage. 
which was kind of a natural consequence because we were struggling to define what it meant to be a man or a woman at the outset. We don't know what masculinity is or femininity is. And we, instead, we argue about what it means to be a man or a woman and, and came up with other options, saying you don't even have to pick one of those options if you don't want to. And as we seem to continue to lose track of how the Creator designed humans to be, we're slipping into chaos and the world can't figure out why. And so instead, they turn to the government and ask them to fix their problems and to discipline evil and to guide them into prosperity. And I turn to the world and I ask them, how's that working out for you? You see, what I think Paul wants us to recognize this morning is that a home that is centered on Christ and ordered by his design becomes the launching pad of the gospel-centered kingdom advancement. And it brings with it health and vitality. And if that's the case, then we must know by the power of the Spirit, we must learn what it looks like to have a Christ-centered home. And that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. Now, one caveat before we begin to start to talk about those contrasting relationships. It is very easy for us to do just like the Jews did and to basically say, Brad, I don't want you to think that there's any type of gray area in anything. I want you just to give me some laws that I can go out there and follow and make sure that I'm doing whatever it takes to keep Jesus off my back. That is our natural inclination. And in as much as I'm going to make some strong statements of what God's design is for our homes and our relationships— Don't get too lost in that thinking that these are hard and fast new laws that you must follow, right? I mean, let's just, just so that you know that I'm not just like jumping off um, the platform into like an ocean of of irrelevancy. Like if if you look at the wives and husband relationships, right? The first thing that we're about to talk about is wives submit to your husbands. If your husband's if your husband is named Clyde and he says, hey, Bonnie, let's go knock off a bunch of banks, God's call on your life, wives, is not to submit to that husband, right? Let's, it doesn't take a genius to figure that out, right? So that being said, these are general principles that God has ordained as they're supposed to be the structure of the family. But don't go so far as to think that there are no circumstances under which there might be some gray area to this, okay? That's my caveat. So, That being said, I get to jump immediately into verse 18. And don't let it be lost on you that Jesse decided to give this one to me to go with. (laughs) Oh, geez. I love being at a church where I know it's people, that they can make fun of me like while I'm up here. (laughs) Um, uh, So verse 18, wives, Submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. This word, and you're going to hear me a lot of the times say this word or this idea, because a lot of the times I was having a conversation on the deck after the first service, we forget that when we read something, we're coming with all kinds of baggage associated with our own personal histories, right? So when I read the text of scripture, I have a tendency to see it with the 40 years of experience that I'm bringing. And And instead, what I'm going to try to encourage us to do this morning is not just ask ourselves, what do we think that these words mean? But what is it that Paul was actually intending to say 
by writing these words? And how did its original hearers receive that message? Because that's the way that I want to be understood, right? When I say something, I want you to actually understand what it is that I'm saying to you, not just like impose your own meaning on the text, okay? So this word, wives, submit yourselves, that verb there means to stand under or to place yourself under. And according to the verse, this is the way of marriage that is fitting for those who are in the Lord. If you've heard me speak before, uh, you know that Paul is, loves using the term in Christ or in the Lord. He doesn't use the word Christian very often. He uses the word those who are in the Lord. And he's saying that Christian homes are going to be such that wives are going to submit to their husbands. This is what is fitting in the Lord. If you stick your finger in Colossians and turn a couple of pages back, in the book of Ephesians, another letter that Paul writes, he addresses this very same issue because it is that important to him. Even to a completely different group of people, he wanted to address some of these family relationships. And we're going to look especially for this first relationship, at what he has to say in Ephesians because he fills in a little bit more of his statements on the wife-husband relationship. But what I want to do in Ephesians 5 is start in verse 20. Ephesians 5, verse 20. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Does that sound a whole lot like chapter 3, verse 17? That was a yes or no question I want you to try to answer. Oh, yeah, it does. It's almost word for word. It's the same type of introduction to the reality. Submitting to one another out of reverence. I'm sorry, back in 521. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Interestingly, Paul starts his passage of wife-husband relationship by first showing that we are to submit to one another out of our reverence for Christ. And then he goes on in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. I want you to look at verse 23 again and recognize that when Paul tells the wives to submit to their husbands in 22, he then provides the answer or the reasoning for which this is the case in verse 23. Notice what you do not see there. Wives, submit to your husbands because they are smarter than you. And all the women say, no, that's not the case. (laughs) Wives, submit to your husbands because they're better than you. Wives, submit to your husbands because God likes men more than women. I don't see any of that in the text. Instead, I see a structure that was set up in verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Submission, as Paul, in Paul's mind, is not a function of value or worth or ability, but one of authority. And it is a structure that is set up by God to reflect Christ's authority over the church. Friends, especially in a first century, you need to recognize that women were not seen anywhere close to equal value. When, a, when somebody tries to give this message today, it's way harder to give this message than it would have been in the first 
in first century. Actually, just the fact that Paul is addressing certain things about the reality of God's structure of the family to women is in and of itself notable. But none of these verses, either in Colossians or in Ephesians, tells us that this submission that the wives are encouraged to do come as a result of some type of structure of superiority, right? I mean, let's just immediately get it off the table. Any man that has thought about this at all will easily recognize how superior women are to men. Easily. They look better. They smell better. They can do all kinds of things simultaneously. We only seem to be able to do one thing. They make humans in their bodies. They're significantly (laughs) superior to men. It has nothing to do with value or worth or superiority. It has to do with the structure that God has set up. Which is why I think it's even more interesting when we look again at the uh, the verb that Paul uses in Colossians. He puts this verse, submit yourselves, in the middle voice. Stay with me. I'm going to go on like a little Greek nerd trip for a second, but stay with me. I want you to understand what it means to be in the middle voice. For a Greek verb, there is active voice, middle voice, or passive voice. Those were your options in which you could construct your verb. Active voice is the type of voice in which I do something to somebody else. Passive voice is the type of voice in which something is done to me. Middle voice is the type of, the type of verb in which I actively participate in the results of something that's happening. So let me give you just kind of a, an example to this. Um, an active voice of counsel. I counsel someone. I tell you that which it is that you need to do, right? Or passive voice, I am counseled, I'm told by somebody else what I should do. But middle voice is I receive counsel. I actively listen to the counsel that has been given to me and I engage in the process and receive it. If you think about that idea for a second, especially if you're a parent, you'll know what I'm talking about because you probably have spent the majority of your time as a parent counseling your child in the ways of wisdom and they do not actively receive said counsel, right? It's more of like a passive of what do I have to do to get you to stop yelling at me so that I can go play or go do whatever it is that I want to do, right? The The middle voice would be what we're looking for, that they would actively receive our counsel. The structure of the verb for wives submit to your husbands in verse 18 of Colossians 3 is is that middle voice in which the women, the wives, are actively being involved in the process of submitting because Paul knows what he is going to tell the husbands to do in verse 19. Verse 19, look at it. Husbands, love your wives and do not embitter them. The verb that Paul uses there, husbands, love your wives. I don't know if you've been around the church long enough to hear this. It's a a popular thing that we talk about. But in the Greek language, the language in which this letter is written, they had four different options for the verb to love. In English, we only have one. And I think that might be part of the reason why we don't even know what love means anymore. Separate conversation. What the Greeks had is four different options to try to describe love. C.S. Lewis, if you want to dive into this a little bit deeper, has a book specifically called The Four Loves in which he lays out the different types of loves 
and what they, what they look like and how they manifest in our lives. The four types of loves for your knowledge. You have philia, where we kind of, it's a brotherly or family love, like Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. That's a family type of love. Or eros, the, where we get the root for our word erotic. That's the romantic type of love. Or storge, which is the type of love that's affection. That, that's like when you and I might go, I love pumpkin spice lattes, right? Which I do not, but it is autumn and the aspens are turning gold and it is a gorgeous time. And I just accept that the pumpkin spice latte comes along with the, with the autumn <laughs> season. But that's storge. Paul doesn't use any of those three verbs. He uses the verb that's formed from the word agape. And agape is the type of love that is best defined as self-sacrificing love. When Paul tells husbands to love their wives, he doesn't tell them, love them like a friend. He doesn't tell them that it's important to have eros in your relationship, romantic relationship, although it is, it is or to love her like you would love a pumpkin spice latte or love your tools or your hot rod or your sports team or whatever the case is. But instead, to love your wife in a self-sacrificial way. Paul draws this out again in Ephesians. Flip back there just real quick to look at as he's talking about wives and husbands. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes Ephesians 5.25 and writes, Husbands, Love your wives, same verb, agape. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, do you suddenly feel inadequate in your ability to love your wife? Because you should. I don't do this very well. I'm not very self-sacrificing. But when Paul writes about love, He uses this love of self-sacrifice because in this contrasting relationship of wives and husbands placing the duty that they have toward one another, your wife, husbands, out of her love for Christ knows that it's her calling to submit herself. But you should be making it easier for her. Doing it because of your self-sacrifice to her needs. And can you see how those two things would work well if they actually are working with one another? If you've been married for a while, you've probably committed the same mistake that I have at some point, that noticing that the other person is not doing whatever their job is, you feel like you should draw to their attention that they're not doing that thing and try to make them do that thing. Does that work out real well? Okay, good. Just want to make sure all of our experiences are the same. It doesn't work real well when you try to force it. But when both are following the call of Christ and filling their duty toward one another in that way, it becomes a beautiful symbiotic thing with the husband loving his wife with a self-sacrificial love, which makes it so easy for the wife to recognize that God has placed him in the position of authority in the family and to willingly submit herself to that structure. And then Paul also writes in the end of verse 19 a word picture that I really like. He says, by agapeing your, li- your wife, do not embitter her. He actually takes this word picture of just automatically assuming at the outset that your wife is something sweet like honey. 
and that by failing to agape your wife in the way that God is calling you, you add poison to that honey, embittering and embittering farther. I love that he starts from that place of just assuming that your wife is a sweet and wonderful thing for you to cherish. That is true. If you don't realize that that's the case, you're wrong, okay? She is. I don't care who she is. She's superior. We all know that, right? Okay, so that being said, this structure that God has set up in terms of wives submitting themselves, husbands, they, they work together. And that continuing of working together continues in the next contrasting relationship that Paul talks about, starting in verse 20, where we start talking about children and parents. Verse 20, children, obey your parents according to all things, for this is well-pleasing in the Lord. When I was a young man, reading this verse, I was very much interested in trying to understand at what point does this no longer apply to me, right? Like, does that mean at like 17 and 364 days, obey your parents, but like next day, I'm free. I can do whatever. You you might be inclined to, (laughs) yeah, young people. (laughs) You might be inclined to think that way, I, will, I want to show you for a moment that that's probably the wrong way of thinking about it. And the fact that you're all laughing with me, which is a good sign, indicates that you also know that that's not the case. Even when we look at first century culture and, and the, the New Testament into which this was written, it had a mix of both Judeo thinking and Greco-Roman thinking. They both interestingly kind of saw somebody coming to adulthood sometime between the ages of about 14 and somewhere around 20. It was kind of a loose thing dependent upon the individual. But ultimately, the backdrop, remember Paul is very Jewish in his thinking, and so Paul would be very influenced in his understanding of child and parent by the Old Testament law. And if we look at probably the most familiar portion that you have to the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments, there is a commandment pertaining to children and parents. Do you remember it? Anybody want to go out on a limb and quote it, or should we turn there? It's almost like he's a pastor or something. (laughs) Well done. Well done. You know the one I'm talking about, but I do want to look at it. Because there's something specifically, go to Exodus 20, there's something in this commandment that I want to point out to you. If you look at Exodus 20, getting there, getting there. We're going to be looking at verse 12 in Exodus 20 of the Ten Commandments. And I want you to notice how it's written here. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, if you look at 20 verse 12, and you look over at 3 verse 20, what word is missing in 2012? Somebody said it. Don't be afraid. Somebody. What? Do you see that children is not there in Exodus 20? Do you see that according to Exodus 20, the command is not being given to children? How many people are receiving the command in Exodus 20? Everyone. Thank you, Kinsey. Everyone. 
not just kids. Honor your father and mother, and it will, as a result, give you long life in the land that God is giving you. Paul is writing this within a framework, within an idea that Jews were perpetually supposed to be honoring their elders and their parents among them. It's not just a command being given to children, but to all. Now, that being said, Paul does have something specific to say to children. Children, obey your parents according to all things, for this is well-pleasing in the Lord. I think, let me just... If you are either a child or have been at some point, raise your hand. Those of you who aren't, raising your hand, let's let's talk afterwards. You might be a little confused on biology. I'm no biological master, but I can help you understand something. None of you were hatched from some space egg, okay? We've all been a child. We've all been the subject of parents at some point. But young people specifically, let me talk to you in this moment. I know that you think that it's your job to know better than your parents and to challenge their authority and to blaze your own trail and to follow your heart. That's what all the Disney movies want you to do. And this makes sense when you're young because when you're young, you know everything, which is a fantastic time. Now, remember the caveat that I said at the outset. Sometimes it actually might be a correct thing for you to not obey your parents. But do you know who you should not consult to figure out when it's one of those times? Other young people. Don't do that. If you're trying to figure out, should I or should I not obey my parents, don't turn to Snapchat for tips. It's not there. Okay? That's one of the beautiful things about the body of Christ is that in this church, you know one of the things that would break my heart about the population of this church if it significantly changes? I would hate to have a church filled with 30-year-olds because we don't know a dang thing. We just barely started on life. And for some reason in our culture, we have this tendency to devalue those who have walked through life before us in their 70s and their 80s as we worship youth culture and we just completely ignore what our elders have to offer. That is unacceptable in this church. Hopefully, by the grace of God, we'll never become that because old people, I'm going to call you that because you know, you've been calling yourself that. You know, you have so much to offer. Please, even when we ignore you, please don't give up on us. We need what you have. We need to honor you for what God has done with you through the many more years that you have walked. Which is why Paul then can write in verse 21 his guidance to those who are guiding the younger. Parents, do not provoke your children in order that you might not dishearten them. We want to, as parents, do what is probably next to impossible and try to make it easier for our kids to obey us. What I don't mean by that is bribe them with candy or give in to their tantrums. What this certainly doesn't mean is don't discipline your children. The Bible has lots to say about the value of discipline. One of the strongest verses is in Proverbs 13, 24, where the author of the Proverbs says, if you hate your child, then don't discipline your child. 
If you hate your child, don't discipline at all. Because real love for your child means careful and diligent discipline. Which is why Paul says at the end of verse 21 that we're doing this in a way that does not dishearten them. The word picture there is literally removing the soul and the heart of who they are as an individual child. I will not try to embarrass them because I always thought it was embarrassing to watch speakers embarrass their own kids, but they're both present in this room right now. And they are very, both of my kids are present in this room right now, and they are very different young men. And my responsibility as a parent is to recognize that guiding them is going to be different for each of them. God has a specific plan for each of my sons. And I don't always know exactly what that is, but I cannot try to respond in a way, discipline them in a way that doesn't take into consideration the heart that God has given them. And that's the call to parents being given by Paul here in verse 21, to discipline them in such a way that would never completely destroy their heart, but to recognize specifically how God has made them uniquely to be and to discipline them accordingly because you love them, doing so carefully and diligently. Which brings us to our last contrasting relationship, slaves and masters, starting in verse 22. Slaves, obey according to all things. That structure there is literally the same structure that Paul wrote in verse 20. Children, obey according to all things. He writes it again in 22. Slaves, obey according to all things. Those who are your fleshly masters, not only in eye service as man pleasers, but instead with sincere hearts in the fear of the Lord. This morning, I'm going to use the slightly uncomfortable word slaves because that's that's actually in the text. The ESV, the one that we typically use here as a church, likes to translate it as bond servants, mostly because that's a little bit more comfortable for us to hear because we have some hangover, rightly so, that we're still dealing with with slavery in our, in our culture and in our country. And that, that does need to be addressed. I'm not trying to minimize that. But what I want us to try to do, like I said earlier, is to try to understand in the first century what were these words meaning? And in, for, for slaves in the first century, especially in a Greco-Roman culture to which he was writing the letter of Colossae, or, or in Colossae, probably about 50% of the people when you were walking around were some slave of some kind. And there were lots of different ranges of slavery. Some of that slavery was even voluntary. Some of it was involuntary. We can't just weaken it and say that there were some that were voluntary or that that most of it was involuntary. No, there was lots of different ranges of it. Some slaves were highly powerful and important in the household, and others were just seen like the furniture. There was a big range, but all of these types of slave-master relationships were happening inside the home. And Paul wanted to try to address what it looks like to be a slave who is in Christ and to be a master who is in Christ. And what we're told for slaves, first first off, is that they are to obey with sincerity, knowing that they're going to be rewarded. Obey in a way not just that looks like you're visually obeying, but you're actually obeying. You see, in this Christian community in which they were working, the social lines of culture were starting to kind of be dissolved. 
And Paul was trying to instruct slaves to not use their freedom in Christ as leverage against their master. If you want more information and more of an idea of what was going on and how this was playing out in the early church, there's a small book in the New Testament that doesn't get a ton of attention uh, by the name of Philemon. I don't know if you've heard of it before. Anybody heard of it? Just nod if you've heard of it. It's okay if you haven't, because it's a pretty short book, and it doesn't get a ton of attention. But Philemon is a letter written by Paul to a guy by the name of Philemon. Philemon owned a slave by the name of Onesimus. Onesimus had run, for whatever reason, we don't exactly know why, had run from Philemon. And through uh, coincidence, as if we had reason to put faith in coincidences, God brought Onesimus to Paul. And as a result, Onesimus gave his life to Christ. Paul then instructed the newly converted Onesimus, hey, you got to go back to Philemon. And he puts in Onesimus' hand a letter to Philemon. That's the book of Philemon that we have. And as you read that letter, you realize the tension that's there. Paul basically kind of saying, I can kind of make you do something here, but I'm going to trust you to do the right thing. Because what was happening is Christian brothers were trying to figure out, what does it mean for me to be owned by another human being when we are equal brothers under the mercy and the grace of Christ? That was a confusing thing for them to try to live through. And Paul doesn't necessarily dive directly into how to parse that all out. And as a result, there have been people that have looked at texts like this through the years and say, the Bible justifies slavery. And there, sure enough, have been people throughout the history of the world that have used the Bible to justify slavery. So a quick social note, does the Bible justify slavery? Oh, wow. You just you quickly want to jump on that. And so be prepared to answer the question why you're so strong on no. Instead of me diving into it for a full explanation, let me just give you one quote that I found a commentator using. This guy's, by, this guy's name is Curtis Vaughn, and he writes, The apostles were not primarily social reformers. They were first and foremost heralds of the good news of the salvation in Christ. Then again, the church was a very small minority in the Roman world, and there was no hope that its stance on the matter of slavery would influence Roman policies. We should be careful to understand, though, that they did not condone slavery. Indeed, they announced the very principles, such as that of the complete spiritual equality of slave and master, that ultimately destroyed the institution of slavery. You see, the apostles knew that instead of directly attacking social issues, if people become confronted with the truth of the pure grace of the risen Christ, the foundations that uphold sin in all of its forms will erode. And if you think about that for a little while, what it might guide you to is the recognition that our culture probably needs a little bit less from us on social commentary and a little bit more on the grace of Jesus and how he's worked in our lives. I'm not saying you can't get involved a little bit. Keep it balanced in terms of the way things are important. It's from this idea that we see 
one, one concept that we can really extract that's applicable to us in verse 23. Whatever you do, work from your soul is the word that's there. As unto the Lord and not men. If you are in this room, there's a strong possibility that you have some form of job. You have to do something during the rest of the week. And if you are anything like me, that job, for the most part, has a tendency to suck your soul from your, your heart. And it is important for us, as we experience that, to recognize that we do not work for a paycheck. We don't work to make our supervisors happy. We don't work so that we can climb the ladder or have the most successful business. Our work is done in service to the true king. And when you recognize that, when I will recognize that, when I will submit to that, I recognize why Paul can so directly say, you must work from your soul, from the depth of who you are. And if that results in your supervisor being pleased with you, fantastic. If that results in me earning enough money to be able to feed my family, wonderful, praise God. But what I'm doing first and foremost in any endeavor is to work from my soul for the true king. And as a result, Paul can even apply this idea to the masters in chapter 4, verse 1. Don't get thrown off by the fact that it switches chapters, it just goes to show you another example of how the chapter and verse divisions were just done by a drunken monk in the Middle Ages. Don't get like too tied up on them. Instead, we obviously can tell because it's been wives, husbands, children's parents, slaves. We're looking for masters being the the contrasting relationship. Lords or masters, according to verse 1 of chapter 4, grant your slaves rightness and fairness, knowing that you also have a Lord or a master in heaven. In the Roman world, as has often been the case in all areas of the world that have allowed slavery to be a part of its culture, slaves had no rights whatsoever. None. No rights. So for Paul to instruct their masters to treat their slaves with rightness or justice And fairness is a revolutionary idea. In the kingdom of God, masters were being held to a responsibility of ruling that was matched against whom? Who was their standard? Jesus, God, knowing that you also have a Lord in heaven. If you are found in a a position of power over other people, you must recognize that the standard by which you are going to be evaluated is not how successful you are at getting those people to do what it is that you want them to do. The standard by which you will be judged if you are given that position of authority is how well did you rule those people like God rules you. That's scary. Heavy duty. I'll take that description. Heavy duty. So, in response to all of these things, I said at the outset that I knew that not all of these relationships would immediately apply to you, but I think that we still learn, even if they, 
if they don't apply, I think we still learn some principles that I want to draw out as kind of our final takeaways in response to this text. One of the first takeaways that I saw there is that we learn true love submits its own desires for the benefit of the other. And as you chew on that concept that real love submits its own desires, you realize that there's an answer there for our culture. Are you ever struck by our culture seemingly to be filled with so much hate and anger? Even amongst or for the dumbest things. We get angry about the dumbest things. You know, I don't like to talk necessarily about what I do for my job, but do you know what makes the, the number one thing that people get mad about in this town? Parking. You're not allowed to park there. He parked there. He's not supposed to. I don't know where to park. It costs money to park. I, the, he parked at the parking wars, where we leave our machine that transports us from one place to another. People get furious about it. You think they're really angry about the parking? No, no, not really. There's something going on in their heart, and they don't know why. They don't know why they're so angry. How do we address that issue? We don't address that issue by saying, stop being so angry. That's not going to work. How do we address that issue? We recognize that true love submits its own desires for the benefit of the other, knowing that our Savior has called us to love everyone, not just husbands loving their wives. Same verb. But in the home, starting with husbands genuinely and sacrificially loving their wives. Wives sacrificially loving their husbands and submitting themselves to the authority that was placed there by that structure of God. And single people understanding that you should accept no version of love that is not this version of love. You are told about all kinds of versions of love that aren't love. They're barely even like. Accept no substitutes. The second thing that we see in here is that we see that youth needs gentle correction and elders need respect. Do you find yourself sometimes looking at this world and saying it is recklessly careening into the future? Not even just like ignoring history, but now actively taking part in trying to destroy it. We don't want to learn from the past. We are headed into the future. How do we address that problem? How do we address the ills that come from that? Number one, please, elders, don't give up on us. Don't. I talk to you because let's just call a spade a spade. I can look at some of you and, and know that you fit in the category of elders. That is a beautiful thing that you are, you are here with us. We love what you bring to the table. Don't think that you have nothing to offer. That's, the, that's what the culture would tell you. What God has told us through Scripture is the exact opposite. That we need what you have learned. Please continue to be among us and recognize your value. Lovingly correct us when we go astray. Youth, those of us who are young, show honor and respect to your elders. Listen to what they've learned. Your friends, they're fun, but they're dumb. 
true. <laughs> it's true. That's okay. I'm not saying don't hang out with your friends. I'm just saying don't try to learn, learn about life from somebody that hasn't lived it. I mean, that's just, that's foolishness. And if you think about it for five seconds, you'll recognize it too. Last, we learn that our work is done well, not for appearances, but because we serve the true king. And we do so with justice and fairness in our actions. When you look at this culture and you look at what's going on outside these doors, do you feel like corruption and greed pollute all of the institutions? Yeah, it does. It does. Are we going to be able to fix it? I don't know. Humans are going to continue to be a part of those institutions. But, but in your unique small corner, in the area in which you have been given the ability to live for the kingdom, work with sincerity for your true boss. If you have the awesome and terrifying responsibility of managing or ruling or leading other people, we must do so in a way that is right and fair, knowing that we will answer to our true leader with how successful we are according to that measure. Not how much money we made for the company. The musicians are going to come up as we respond to, to God. But by way of closing, I'm just going to read you this very short thing that I wrote here. Just, just a way to close. We learn from these things that in a world whose priorities are completely backwards, we shine the light of the gospel through our relationships, starting inside the home and then moving outward. And we do this for the glory of the Father, in the service of the true King, and by the power of the Spirit. God, I immediately, as soon as I share this information and know that I step off stage, I'm going to have the propensity to fail at this. And so I start by apologizing and yet taking such comfort in the fact that I know that your mercy will be there again to guide me. And Lord, I, I pray that for the rest of us in this room, that no matter how successful or unsuccessful we have been in employing these concepts, that we would be filled with your spirit in a way that fills our homes with the light and the beauty of who you are. And that as a result, when we move out into the world, that it would see your greatness and that your reputation would be greater. God, use our efforts for your benefit. Amen. Family, let's uh, stand together. It's always unique to come and encourage you through song. And even this next uh, last song as we respond in Christ alone. Let's, uh, let's sing together.
Christ alone, my hope is found. 